Hello there. Welcome to episode 10 of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association Toronto branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner and Chris Gorman. Thank you for being with us today for our 10th episode. We're going to ease into today's show with details of this month's Canadian Authors Toronto Open Mic event and some upcoming writing contests that any of our listeners can submit their work to. Then we're going to welcome our guests to help us celebrate this month's theme, Women in Horror Month. I'm so excited about this episode, Chris. Horror is one of my favorite genres, whether I'm reading it, writing, watching, I'm a big fan of horror. So Women in Horror Month exists to share, support, and promote women in the horror industry. And here to help us do that are CAA members and horror writers, A.P. Cairns, reading her flash fiction piece, Megan M. Davies-Ostrom, reading an excerpt from her short story, and Tanya Liebert. That's right, Brandy. They'll each give us a five-minute reading from their work and then join us for a quick chat to get to know them better. This month, our readings are a little bit edgier than normal, as befitting an episode celebrating Woman in Horror. And in one of our conversations, there is some language and conversations about a very important subject, mental health. Well, I can't wait to introduce our guests, so let's get into it. After taking a break from our monthly events in January, we came back strong on February 25th with a virtual open mic night via Zoom. 14 Canadian Authors Association Toronto members shared their fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. If you missed the event, don't fear. The readings were recorded and we will feature some of them on a future podcast episode. Our March event is still in the planning stages. So stay tuned to our event calendar at canadianauthors.org slash Toronto slash events for further details. And that brings us to the writing contests. So Chris, what are some of the awesome contest opportunities coming up? Oh, well, Brandy, we've got quite a few to go over. Uh, First up, the Toronto Star Short Story Competition closes at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, February 28th. Open to Ontario residents, this is the 42nd competition and is one of the biggest of its kind in North America. First prize is $5,000 and a creative writing course from the Humber School for Writers. Second prize is $2,000 and third prize, $1,000. Some big prizes there. So if you have a short story ready to go, don't miss out on this one. Another short story contest, the Alice Munro Festival of the Short Story Annual Literary Short Story Competition, has two separate categories, one for adults aged 19 years and older, and one for youth up to 19 years of age, on or before March 25th, 2021. There is a $25 entry fee for adults and $10 for youth. Submit your 2,500-word work of fiction by March 14th for the chance to win the first prize of $500 or one of two runner-up prizes of $250. Well, those sound like some great fiction contests to try your hand at. But if you're looking for ways to get your nonfiction work out there, you have until March 28th to enter a personal essay 
in the Edna Stabler Personal Essay Contest for a shot at the $1,000 prize. The $40 entry fee includes a one-year Canadian subscription or renewal to the new quarterly, the magazine Edna Stabler helped to found in 1981. This contest is interested in essays in which the writer's personal engagement with the subject provides the frame or through line. While there's no word limit, most essays fall within the range of 2,000 to 5,000 words. But maybe you have a longer nonfiction work you want to get published? Pottersfield Press is again looking for submissions to the Pottersfield Prize for Creative Nonfiction from writers who can provide a manuscript of 30,000 to 150,000 words in the categories of history, memoir, autobiography, biography, literary journalism, political or social commentary, or travel writing, or really any existing or new category that uses the nonfiction medium to tell a story or put forward an idea. This contest is dear to my heart because Pottersfield Press is located at Lawrencetown Beach in Nova Scotia. And I'm from Nova Scotia. That's where my parents live to this day in Riverport. So submit your nonfiction manuscript along with the $25 entry fee by March 31st. First prize is a publication contract plus a $1,500 advance on 10% royalty for all sales. And second prize is publication and a $1,000 advance on 10% royalties. Those are some awesome prize opportunities there, Brandy. And some pretty good royalties if you win that one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how about a writing contest for the young writers in your life? The Kids Write for Kids ninth Annual Writing Contest is for students in grades four to eight. Entries must be made by either the parent or guardian of the minor author of the submission or by the author's teacher with permission of the author's parent or guardian by March 31st. Stories can be fact or fiction, prose or poetry, with a maximum word count of 6,500 words. The winner will be published at Amazon, Apple iBookstore, Google Play, and Overdrive. The proceeds from the book sales will be donated to the charity of their choice, and they will be part of the judging panel for the following year's contests. Thanks, Chris. What a good opportunity for the young writers out there. Lastly, the deadline for the 2021 Fred Kerner Book Award is almost here. All entries must be postmarked on or before March 1st for the chance to win $400 and a one-year complimentary membership to Canadian Authors Association. This is for any CAA member with a book published in 2020. So you can go to canadianauthors.org slash national slash links slash awards dash competitions for complete details of all those contests and more. Wow, Brandy, those are a lot of opportunities for our listeners. And I'm so glad that the Fred Kerner Book Awards is still available for submissions because I've had my books and my submission form ready to submit for the past two months <laughs> sitting right beside me. <laughs> You're running out of time. <laughs> yeah, down to days now instead of weeks. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that concludes the event and contest portion of our show. It's now time to welcome our guests to help us celebrate Woman in Horror Month. Get cozy, get comfy, and here we go. 
AP Cairns is an upcoming Canadian fiction author who has spent her years working in numerous fields, which run the gambit from tarot reader to accountant to private investigator and a few others in between. Turns out this was all research for her fiction writing, and now that knowledge will be used to weave interesting worlds, characters, and plots. AP has one occult title published, and it will soon be joined by another anthology of mystery short stories. She is semi-retired and a freelance fiction editor who is currently working on her creative writing certificate at the University of Toronto, as well as a degree in English at Queen's University. Welcome to the show, AP. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Um, so you're a freelance editor as well as a writer then? I am. Uh, I got my certificate in editing uh, through George Brown uh, College. Uh, just received that in December. Um, that was a couple of years of, of uh, intensive work. Um, so, so many courses and, and not easy. I think grammar was my biggest nightmare. That's interesting. I actually took some editing courses uh, through George Brown myself. Um, it Did was, you? yeah, it was over five years ago. I didn't get a full certificate or anything, but I wanted to get back into writing. And it had been a while since I had really, um, you know, been in English or, or taken any classes. So I went and I took some editing and some uh, uh, gra grammar in particular course. And yeah, it was a lot of work. You, you forget what you don't what, what you don't remember anymore. You know what I mean? Like yeah. some of it was from, was like high school English, but I had forgotten a lot of it. So I found it really helpful. Oh, well, uh, you know, there was a lot of the, you know, the grammar course itself was, was a nightmare. Um, for me, some people were fine with it, but for me, it was a nightmare. I mean, a gerund, what, what the heck is a gerund? I <laughs> never even heard of a gerund before. And, uh, just some terms and things like that that have been changed over the years. So it was very, um, very difficult for someone who's coming this late to to a subject that that's been overhauled, basically. And so I had to relearn all the terms and everything else. So it was a nightmare, but well worth it. I just love the written word, and I love how it can be manipulated and um, you know, needed into these magnificent stories that uh, that are coming out of people, you know, uh, sure. just things that I would never even think of. And, and I think of a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> that's good for a writer, uh, yeah. <laughs> big imagination. <laughs> and how can people find you for your editing? Um, I have a website that uh, is right now, it's a little bit dormant because of all the work that I am doing, uh, but it's still out there. It's sunlightpublishers.ca. Okay. And, uh, and yeah, it sounds like you're, you're definitely doing a lot of work with two different courses happening right now. Yes, and I am still um, doing the occasional bit here and there. I, uh, I'm on two committees with the Editors Canada. And I do, I do uh, produce eBooks. So if people have um, material they want to just upload to Amazon or something where you still have to produce an eBook and uh, mm -hmm. 
Um, I do that for people. And uh, what else do I do? And of course, developmental editing and copy editing and stuff like that. So I do these things on the side when I have the time. Yeah, it's awesome. a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it would be. Uh, I would love to do something like that one day. Um, I keep saying that, but it, one day never seems to come. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day comes one day at a time, you know. I've heard that saying so many times. And it was like, you just start. Mm. So you just start and say, because there's never a good time to start anything, you know. I mean, I'm going to wait till it's a good time to have a baby or I'm going to wait to have uh, to, till it's a good time to uh, write a book or, or write a story or something. You just start. Mm-hmm. And, uh, awesome. And speaking of writing a story, you are <laughs> here today to read to us from one of yours. Yeah. Yes. Um, I. Uh, thank you for inviting me. This this is a real treat for me. Um, uh, the story that I'm going to read is, is well. First of all, I should tell you that I'm like a pantser of the biggest kind. Okay, and for those of you who don't know what a pantser is, is that's, that's somebody who just sits down and starts writing. Uh, you know, you have an idea in mind and you let it take you. To wherever it's going to go and um, so that's my biggest downfall I have done outlines and things like that in the past but um, pantsing that's me to to a T so I just sat down and started to write this story uh, about someone who was um, parachuting for the you know by by himself for the first time and um, it just developed from there into something that was, uh, it had a very, very strange ending. <laughs> so I, I uh, you know, you'll find out the ending as, as I start to read, but it, it you know, I, I really liked it. And uh, after some editing, it took shape and, and became what it is today. So shall I begin? Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to hear you. Okay. Karma is inevitable. That's my title. As he plummets to earth, a whirlwind of thoughts swirl in his mind. What was I thinking? I'm not ready for this. Dan had wanted to get a few more jumps with Samson, his coach. But Samson said there was no point. Do or die, choose. This is Dan's first solo jump. He had jumped a few times before, piggy fronted to his coach. You can't go wrong with a man named Samson. Who wouldn't feel safe? Samson was a fair judge of men and very strong. Or so it says in the Bible. You're bound to be okay, even when falling to earth from a great height. Samson said, leave, free fall for another time. Pull the cord. At about 13,000 feet, Dan falls into some nasty turbulence that blows him around like a leaf in a hurricane. Fear grips. He fights for breath while his heart constricts as if a hand is inside his chest, squeezing. He tries to massage his chest, but his arms are held out by the force of the fall. A blood vessel in his eye bursts. His calves cramp, twisting him into a plummet. He drops like a rock. Got to control my fall. 
The world looks different from 12,000 feet, 11,000, 10,000. Dan finally regains control. Pull the cord before it's too late. Oh no, I can see cars. I'm too close. Pull the cord. I can't find it. Samson always pulled the cord. Are those electrical towers? Oh God, if I can see electrical towers, I'm really too close. Are those cows? Where's the cord? He fights the wind, yet manages to pull his arm to his shoulder. His fingers close around the ripcord. He pulls. The chute opens and the loss of momentum makes his stomach lurch. Another blood vessel bursts. This one is close to the tear duct and a drop of blood escapes then skitters across his forehead through his hair and detaches. It meets the chute above and splats. A lone red dot on a white chute. Dan collects himself. It's still pretty windy, but he's in control. Where am I? This isn't so bad. He must have been blown way off course because he can't see the jump zone. It's all forest beneath him. But not far away is an open grassy enclosure with a large parking lot off to the side. It looks like a safe bet. He makes up lyrics to the tune of ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long. Yeah, it's gonna be all right, oh yeah. He uses the chords to guide himself towards the grass. In a home in a nearby city, a woman covers her black eye with makeup. She wears a long-sleeved turtleneck sweater to hide other bruises. Her movements are slow and deliberate. Three of her ribs are broken. The phone rings. The display reveals it's her mother. She can't listen to pray that he'll change. Not again. She knows he'll never change. Her bags are packed and waiting in the hallway. She walks into the living room and over to the piano where a collection of photos cover the top. She picks a wedding photo. Dan feeds her cake. She smashes it to the floor, then leaves the house with her bags. She doesn't look back. Dan prays, dear God, let me land safely. I'll promise I'll never hurt anyone again. I'll give to charity. I'll be kind to my mother and my wife anything. Just let me land safely. I swear I'll be good. A gentle wind blows him towards the grass. The world becomes more familiar with every second he is over the parking lot and on track to land in the field. A huge chain-link fence, maybe 20 feet high, separates the field from the parking lot. He will clear it, just, but wonders why it's so high. At the edge of the parking lot, he sees a massive sign, which he can't read yet. He drops onto the grass, running a few feet before he stops, a perfect landing. He removes his gear, forgetting all about God. He beats his chest with one fist and yells, yeah! Adrenaline takes him over. His eye still bleeds a little, so he dabs it with his sleeve. He continues to yell, whoo, who's the man? His first solo jump was a success. He stops whooping and beating his chest and remembers the sign. He can read it now. Wild lion habitat. The grass all around him ripples and then parts. 
a pride of 12 African lions surround him. Dan doesn't have time for a last thought. That's awesome, AP. Wow. <laughs> there are so many things about that story. That was a great reading. Thank you. Oh, you're oh, welcome. You're welcome. And thank you thank for you, letting Connie. me read it. It was oh, fun. Absolutely. And I got to say, I, I always enjoy a story where you get to have a, a little bit of karaoke in the middle of it. That was a great <laughs> of ACDC. That was very nice. <laughs> Yeah, I well, I don't know that I'm actually could be called a fan of ACDC, but during this, you know, the last thing with with SARS back in, I guess it was 2003 or something. And, uh, you know, everybody was giving Toronto a hard time because they admitted to having some cases and the Stones had a rock concert. It was called SARS Fest or something and um, at uh, Downsview. Air Force Base, and it was a half a million people or so that that showed up to it. It was huge. Oh wow! Yeah, and ACDC I, I played. You did, yeah. So you remember, and ACDC played, and so I thought, oh, I really like this music. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you write much other uh, in the horror suspense field. Is that kind of your? Well, you know. I write where, where it takes me. I, I have no idea. Most of the time, it you know, I've been dabbling with comedy. Um, I have a sense of humor, so no reason why I shouldn't use it and, um, in my writing. But I do like the genre, uh, the suspense more than the horror. Blood and guts is really not my thing. But if you do it with a comedic bent, it, it can be fun. <laughs> you know, so, uh, by the time I was... 13, I guess I'd seen every vampire movie ever aired on television and uh, all of that, those types of movies were a big thing for me. So it's going to reflect in what I write, but yeah, I, I like leaving people to, to think what's going to happen. I think that the imagination is far um, more dangerous and more compelling than what I could ever put on a page. And, and uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. It's just where you said you have a sense of humor. You can definitely see that come through in this story. I mean, you're dealing with some, a few tough subject matters. You're dealing with death and domestic abuse, but you can still hear that humor come through when you said, and are those cows? I'm glad I was on mute because I just, <laughs> I just thought that was, it just struck me really funny. Um, and there were a couple of moments like that in the story. So you can definitely hear your sense of humor. Um, I do have kind of a, a question because it's about skydiving. Have you skydived before? No, but I've flown. I was just curious. I've never, I've, I've never jumped out of a plane. And so I was just curious if you had. Um, no, I, I took flying lessons. I had to abort. I mean, as you can see, first of all, I aborted because there was not enough money. And so I, you know, I thought, oh, okay, I'll go back to it. That was a few years ago. And now with everybody locked down and nobody allowed to sit very close and, and all of these things, um, it would be very difficult in a small plane because you're shoulder to shoulder, knee to knee. You know, there's really not a lot of room in those things. And uh, so it, it's just out of the question at the moment. And who knows if we'll ever get those rights back. So 
Um, I may never. But there's one of the things that they teach or that you have to go through. So in training, and that is when the plane actually dips and, and loses control. So you have to bring it out of a spin. And so, you, you know, that's, that's quite exhilarating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was there anything in particular that made you think of skydiving as inspiration for this story? Or just one of those things that popped into your head and you ran with it? I, yeah, it was just one of those things that popped into my head. And uh, as they do, <laughs> I'm, you know, often walking along and going, oh, I wonder what would happen. And then either I get to, I get to a, um, a computer to write it out or I, I don't, you know, I write some notes, but sometimes they make it into stories and sometimes they don't, but um, this one did. Did, uh, did you take your lessons up at Buttonville or? Um, I took a couple of lessons at Buttonville and, but most of them were out of the Lindsay airport. And then oh. my instructor had been moved to Billy Bishop. And mm -hmm. so I took a couple of lessons there. I grew up in Little Britain, which is quite close to Lindsay. So. Oh, it's such a pretty little town. I've driven through it. And it is just, I, I can't tell you the thoughts I had while driving through it. <laughs> you know, if I hadn't uh, an appointment, I would have stopped and written some, some pretty cool stories. Um, but, you know, who's got a notepad when they're driving? I must go back there one day. It's and that's the sorry I'm from Nova Scotia so I'm not uh, familiar with it so there's an Ontario town called Little Britain that's right I didn't even know that yeah. the things it's, not, you learn. it's not just on a show <laughs> <laughs> and, and who, who knew like I thought where the heck am I and, um, I had no idea <laughs> it's got a, quite a good little bakery it's cool yeah I, I used to live actually right across from one of the cemeteries there and it was always a little bit spooky oh how cool another person who lived near a cemetery um when i grew up with the cemetery at our back wow. in fact going to school every morning it was on the other side of the cemetery so there was a prospect cemetery in in toronto and it's divided so it goes from eglinton to st Clair, st Clair to eglinton however you want to look at it and in the middle of that there is a road that goes through so it's sort of divided and we lived right by that road so we had to use that to get to school so every day back and forth through the and back and forth <laughs> well, no, that's funny all three of us live near one then did you also yeah i did too uh because uh, for about a year and a half i lived in dartmouth nova scotia so um i was a few years before i moved up here and my apartment was, it was in the middle of a very steep hill for one and right across from the cemetery. Uh, and I would often cut through there to get down to the ferry or I had been jogging at the time. So I would jog through the cemetery. And as long as it's daytime, like it wasn't, you know, it's, it's well-populated area. It wasn't too freaky, but at nighttime, yeah, I'd get a little, <laughs> a little well, freaked out from time to time. Yeah. Well, you know, as teenagers do, I mean, they, they flaunt death and such. And I mean, we used to go into the cemetery at night, just pull one of the boards and, and sneak in because it was very private. 
<laughs> you know, you can you can have a laugh and congregate and uh, be teenagers amongst the uh, tombstones and such, and so nobody would bother you. Yeah, we, we, we did all that sort of thing. But it, it's great for this type of, of story work. I mean, you know, when you're, in, when you're a kid, you have all this imagination that runs around this stuff. Mm-hmm. And watching these shows on TV and, and, and all that, like, I, I'm, I'm amazed uh, uh, that uh, I didn't get terrified or something. But <laughs> I slept very well. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. But I feel like Brandy, your um yours would be even more atmospheric with the, the yeah. salt air and the fairy yeah. coming in and the, the mist rolling through the gravestones. Oh yeah, and it would get super foggy down there, right? And yeah, mm-hmm. we were right across from the harbor, really, because the ferry was right at the the bottom of that hill. And yes, it would get very atmospheric. And um I was trying to teach myself how to draw at the time. So I actually would force myself to go over there like um, early evening before it was fully dark, but it was still very like moody and, and twilighty. And I would sketch out um, some of the surroundings and also to get over. Cause I had a little bit of a fear when I first moved in of living across from the cemetery. So I would force myself to go and do that to kind of get over it. And uh, yeah, very, very atmospheric. <laughs> wow that sounds like fun i I mean really well ap thank you so much for coming on the show today it was so much fun thank you for having me the book that i wrote is on amazon and on kobo as an ebook and the next one will also be an ebook but i am in the process of writing i had mentioned to you a magical realism and comedic as well it's uh, about a private investigator which I did for 10 years and and still licensed but and I have so many questions about that portion of your life but (laughs) we'll have to have you on again at some point another time yeah mystery (laughs) and crime writing month uh yes and i i I could certainly um edit crime crime uh fiction if if anybody's interested but uh yeah you can get in touch with me through uh, sunlightpublishers.ca Megan M. Davies Ostrom is a Canadian author of speculative fiction with a penchant for horror and dark urban fantasy. Her short stories have appeared in anthologies from Gypsum Sound Tales and Brave New Girls and in Cosmic Horror Monthly magazine. She is a member of Canadian Authors Association and is also a senior analyst with the Government of Canada with a master's degree in cultural anthropology. Megan lives in Ontario with her husband, daughter, and two strange cats. When not writing or working, she can usually be found reading, watching horror movies, or playing board games. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. We're so happy you could join us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, I take it you're both authors as well. What genres do you write in? The first book that I've got out is Urban Fantasy. It's set in... 100 years in the future, the return of magic to the world. 
Uh, and there's five books in that series, but I like to dabble in other things, science fiction and historical fiction, but I've never actually uh, finished any of them. <laughs> Dawn of Magic, Rise of the Guardians. Oh, that's that's the name of his book. I never get it right. I can never remember it. So I just wanted to point out to him that I know it this time. <laughs> and writing is more of a hobby for me at the moment. I haven't published anything yet. I've been with the association for probably about three years now. So I struggled a lot with confidence and just feeling like I had found my voice. So I'm only now starting to actually put my stuff out there. So it took some time for me to feel ready to do that. Had to surround yourself with other writers first. Yeah, exactly. And They're very uh, encouraging people. <laughs> yes, that's true. And uh, yeah, the podcast has really helped me get to the point where I want to put myself out there. So yeah. that's us. <laughs> yes. Took me a while to, to get out there too. Like I literally took a 20 year hiatus in my writing. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> Cause kids and life and family and. <laughs> yeah. And you had schooling too, right? You, what's your uh, master's again? Anthropology. Cultural anthropology. And I actually pursued that because I wanted to write speculative fiction. And I figured having an actual good understanding of culture and the kind of the multifaceted nature of culture and all of that would be good for world building. Um, and then life happened. <laughs> and do you find you use that in your world building? Not as explicitly as I thought I would, because there are so many people who are much better qualified to write about specific earthbound cultures than I am, right? I mean, it, it's very important to leave room for voices to write in their own space. But I found that the kind of the understanding of the fact that culture is not monolithic and that there's a lot of intersectionality and differentiation of experience within one culture, that was interesting to bring to world building and to character building because you can really, you know, explore how people are different within their own spaces. And yeah. Seems like a good basis for fiction. Yeah. You know, because it just keeps your mind open to different characters and scenes yeah. and settings and stuff. Yeah. It gives you a good understanding too, right? Yeah. So you're going to share an excerpt with us from The Gate at the End of the Garden. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. No problem. Uh, the Gate at the End of the Garden is a short sort of psychological thriller that was published in an anthology called Close the Gate from Gypsum Sound Tales. The Gate at the End of the Garden. Never go through the gate at the end of the garden. Those were my father's words, spoken the first time we visited the new summer house and repeated every visit thereafter. It was the only parental thing he'd said in years. I liked that gate right from the start. It was pretty, white painted, arched, and draped in flowering clematis vines, the only break in the fence that walled off the bottom of our property. I liked where it led. Beyond the fence and the gate, I knew, lay the barrens, a wilderness of rock, great rolling swells and ridges of Canadian shield granite, thrusting up and falling away, a bleak and beautiful maze of stone and stunted trees that tumbled away from the manicured lines and perfect order of our lawn, all the way to the edge of the river. The river, that was the heart and soul of my father's warning, 
what he truly feared. Narrow, deep, and dark, copper tinted by minerals in the soil and stone over which it flowed, the river raced between its steep, stony banks, eager to reach the falls just a few curves away. High and wide and rife with ridges of hard stone, deadheads and spoon, the falls were close enough we could hear them at night if we slept with the windows open. Close enough that in the spring, when the waters ran high, we could hear them roar. It was the dichotomy of it all that appealed to me. My parents' oh-so-picture-perfect life on one side, violent and deadly nature on the other, kept apart by a pretty little white gate. That and my father's fear, of course. Like I said, the gate brought out the parent in him, and I understood why. A gate like that is a promise more than a barrier. I could be opened, it says, oh so very easily. Even a child could do it. And just look at what lies beyond. A gate like that calls to the imagination and whispers of all the delightfully horrible things that could happen if someone strayed through. The day of Annie's 12th birthday party dawned beautiful, warm, and sunny. Of course it did. Even the weather catered to my parents' aspirations to fame and fortune. It was mid-June, and by noon the whole summer house was filled with the heady smell of baking cakes, gardening, and flowers. Vanilla, sugar, fresh-cut grass, and roses. The perfect perfume for the perfect day for the perfect family, of course. Annie and I were still in school with two weeks to go before we could trade tests and textbooks for bathing suits, ice cream, and long days in the sun. We hadn't planned to come up till the end of the month. But when Annie mentioned a birthday party, our parents smiled those voracious smiles of theirs, changed all our plans, and opened the summer house early. They'd even chartered a private coach to bring up all their friends, and Annie's, although that seemed like an afterthought to me. I was curious to know how much it had all cost, but those were the kind of questions we didn't ask anymore. Mother and father had invited a tank full of the sleek and shiny sharks in suits they called industry people. They're important, mother said as she tissed and tugged at the confection of pale green tulle and applique flowers she'd had custom made for Annie. With her golden curls piled in a loose bun atop her head, my little sister would have looked perfect if she hadn't been crying. I don't care if they're important, she whispered, wincing as mother wiped away her tears and pinched her cheeks to make them glow. Some of them are totes sketchy. I don't like the way they look at me. And it's my birthday. I just want to have fun with my friends. You can, after you meet these people. Your agent says the studio is considering a multi-movie contract this time. Don't you want that? Isn't that wonderful? Just like there were some questions we didn't ask, there were others we didn't answer. Annie stayed silent. When mother was done with Annie, she turned to me. Her sigh, as she brushed invisible lint from the sleeves of my simple gray dress, told me everything I needed to know. Make an impression. That's what counted in our family right now. And once again, I was a disappointment. I was as different from Annie as it was possible to be, pale to her golden glow, slender to her healthy vitality, quirky and odd to her sweet charm. And my big screen career had stalled out after one film, a failure our parents had never forgiven. I don't know why you insist on this Wednesday Adam look, Cecile, but I guess it doesn't matter, does it? Mother huffed as she finished her inspection. Just try to act normal for once. I nodded and smiled but only on my outside face. 
On the inside, I was fuming. Before all this, the movies and the money, our parents had loved what they'd call my quirky sense of style. And what was normal for a 14-year-old anyway? There was a girl in my class who spent all her pocket money sending gifts to singers and boy bands who'd never reply. And another who drew little hearts and highlighter all over her notebooks. Was that normal? Was that what they wanted now? Normal was just a word adults used when they meant not like you. That's amazing. Thank you, Nikki. That was a that was an excellent reading, and there were a couple of different lines in there that I really enjoyed. I like when you say, "I nodded and smiled, but only on my outside face." It's just such a, a clear description of something that we all do, right? We put an expression on our outside face while our inside face has a totally different expression. So, yeah, absolutely. And I love the whole description of the gate in the first part. I can picture that and see it in my mind's eye and kind of want to step through it. (laughs) (laughs) I totally would. (laughs) Yeah, that was my other favorite part. Where was it? It was delightfully horrible. I I liked that, that use of words. So is horror the main genre that you write in? Can you tell us a little bit about just your writing in general? Anything you want to share? I think the best way to describe my writing is that I I write horror-adjacent fiction. So I do write a lot of horror. Um, I write what I kind of call darker modern fantasy. But most of my horror isn't straight on scary. It's more disturbing or unnerving. I guess. So horror adjacent contemporary and speculative fiction. So kind of psychological, suspenseful, thriller kind of stuff. Uh, But bordering enough into speculative that it still still sticks into the genre kind of setting. Um, I've got a couple pieces coming out that I can't quite announce yet, but they, I've been calling them domestic horror, which isn't quite the right term because it's not really domesticity, but it's um, horror that has a lot to do with older women or being a mother or being a wife or the kind of uncertainties and anxieties that come out in just living your life and the fears inherent in loving and losing and daily life. So yeah, horror adjacent. That's great. You'll have to tell us when those, when you can give us the announcements, you'll have to let us know and we'll certainly share it with our listeners. And you've got, uh, I think, six other short stories uh, published in various publications, right? On the adult horror side? I Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've nice. lost track off the top of my head. Um, I have the one that I've uh, written for young adults is science fiction. And that was in the Brave New Girls anthology, which is the charity anthology that raises money uh, to support women's roles in science, technology, engineering, and math professions, so in the STEM field. And um, the other stuff I have, yeah, is mostly adult horror, either with anthologies from Gypsum Sound Tales, which is an Australian horror publication, and then Cosmic Horror Monthly, which is a relatively new monthly zine coming out of the States. Nice. And how do you go about getting a short story published? (laughs) With lots of patience. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's one of the the steepest learning curves uh, for anyone getting into publication is just how many times you're going to have to A, edit, 
and B, send it out and get rejected and edit again and send it out and get rejected. I've, I've spoken with authors who've sent the same story out about 40 times. I think I've only had one accepted on first, <laughs> on first submission. Um, but yeah, you know, you, there's a number of different ways to start out with a short story. If you look for calls for anthologies, there's always anthologies or magazines looking for stories fitting a specific theme. So you can actually write to theme and create a story specifically aimed for that anthology. Or you can write whatever comes to mind and look for a market that it's suitable for. And there's a lot of really good online resources. Um, there's Literarium, which lists calls for anthologies. There's the submission grinder that you can search and it lists markets for various genres, various lengths of stories. Um, but you do your research, you create a submission list and you just start sending it out. But yeah. before that, edit and beta readers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then do you edit based? I guess they don't all give reasons why they're rejecting, right? They almost never give reasons. That's that's the other steep learning curve. Um, I think when writers start out, they think, well, once I start getting feedback from editors and agents, I can perfect this. You never get any feedback. Every single rejection is a is a blind rejection or um you know, not to use a term, it, it, it's a shot in the dark rejection, right? You don't, you've thrown your story at the target. You don't know if you've hit, you don't know why you didn't hit. You don't know what, what made them not choose you. I've had a couple situations that were actually quite positive where I was shortlisted. So I made it into the top 1%. And the rejection notice literally said, we loved it, it was great, uh, but we can't choose everything. And this thematically just didn't quite fit the other ones we chose. So, I mean, it, at least in that case, I know it's not me. <laughs> it's yeah. not my story. And that's the other thing to keep in mind, really, when you get a rejection. It isn't you. It isn't personal. They're not rejecting you. There are a million reasons why an editor or an agent isn't going to pick a particular story, but it's never a personal attack at the author. It's always just... You know, it could be the story needs to be tweaked. It could just be the story didn't fit with the rest of the stories that they chose in that ensemble piece. Right. That's well said, because I think the most consistent thing you probably hear from authors on this podcast is you're going to be rejected sometimes. It's going to happen. <laughs> um, and I was going to ask you, you know, do you have any any tips or any tricks for not giving up? basically. And I guess you, you pretty much just said it there, right? Like you just got to find a way to stay positive and keep on trucking and find the, the publications that are the most suitable for your writing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just keep trying. And, and it's challenging, right? It's challenging to stay positive. I think a lot of authors uh, tend to be sensitive people. <laughs> we tend, we we tend to push ourselves a great deal and always want to do better and do better and do better. And rejection is hard to take and you have to develop a bit of a thick skin. And depending on what else is going on in your life at the moment, sometimes that skin can be thicker and sometimes it's more fragile. Some rejections hit harder than others. And uh, my approach is to just step away for a day. If something hits pretty hard, just, you know, do something else, read a good book, go for a walk. I'm always going to feel better about it the next day. And that's actually good advice for dealing with um, critique from beta readers or editors or anyone you're, you're sharing your material with to get feedback. Get the feedback and walk away from it for a couple of days and then go back to read it from a much less emotional point of view. I, I did that with a couple of pieces of feedback too, yes. <laughs> 
let's just take the weekend away. <laughs> how, how, how many beta readers do you normally put it out to? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I have my husband and my daughter who are my ideal readers. They, they see things in very rough form. They're, they're brutally honest. Um, they love the genre that I write in. They read widely in the genres I write in. So they're very, very good readers to kind of give me uh, just a straight reader's perspective of, do we like this? Do we not like this? What's working? What's not working? I edit based on their feedback. And then I have probably 15 to 20 people who I will go out to in rounds of beta reading. So I'll send it out to about four people and then I'll host a focus group where I get everyone, well, before COVID anyways, get everyone together, feed them cookies and essentially sit back and take notes. I'll throw a discussion question out and then just take notes as everyone talks. And I, I try not to answer a lot in those conversations. It's not about what I'm thinking, it's about what they're thinking. So what worked for you? What didn't work for you? What would you like more of? What would you like less of? What scenes were impactful? Was there anywhere you got confused? And then I'll do a round of editing, deep dive based on that, and then I'll send it out to the next four. Repeat, next that's four. A, that's a good idea, I like that. When I did mine, I did. I had 10 beta readers and then I collected the, the feedback via like a survey. And then I graphed the survey and said, okay, 10 people didn't like this, two people didn't like this, so I could probably live in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're getting a comment from, uh, you know, four or five or six or, <laughs> you know, anywhere from a third to all of your readers, it's something to take really seriously. If you're getting a piece of feedback or conflicting feedback from one or two, you can weigh it. I mean, I've had one person in out of all of them say one thing and have it be really like, you're right. Oh my gosh. And then I've had people say something where every single other person at the table was like, what? <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'll ignore that bit. Yeah. But yeah. I also found like, even with the one off, um, if I sat with it long enough, I could see where they were coming from and what, and, and then I was able to tweak it just enough to eliminate that perspective. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing with, with comments from beta readers, um, particularly if they're readers rather than craft people, is they may know that something has bothered them, but they may not know from a literary craft point of view how to fix it. So what is behind their suggestion might be more important to get to than what they've actually suggested. And I've even found that I, I work with a freelance editor on my novels, not because I wasn't fairly confident with what I had after four and five rounds of beta reading, but I just wanted to make sure that when I started querying agents, I had the best possible, I wanted to have my chances, right? And some of the suggestions that the freelance editor that I work with gave me, I didn't agree with from a plot and character point of view, but I could see what he was getting at from a structural point of view under it, that there was a, a specific narrative hook that he felt would be good emotionally to introduce. So, so my reply when I was kind of chatting back and forth with him was like, I see exactly what you're asking for. I disagree 100% in the way you want me to do it. <laughs> but how about this instead? Would that have the same emotional hook? And he's like, oh yeah, that's perfect. So the other thing to keep in mind always when working with beta readers and critique partners and editors is that you are the author. 
you understand your work, you understand the characters, the questions they're giving you can help you clarify that understanding, but you have to make the final decision on what, what happens and what stays and what goes. And for sure, which is excellent awesome. advice. Yeah. Yeah. And just for your future reference, when you can do your focus groups again, I do read for cookies. <laughs> <laughs> always after reading for cookies. <laughs> I'm always happy to bribe people with cookies. <laughs> and I just want to encourage, encourage everyone to check out your website, mdaviesostrom.com and follow you on Twitter at M-M-D-A-V-I-E-O-S- T-R-O-M. And I wanted to say that your website for me is addictive. The pictures and the stories about your mutant cats just kept me on there way longer than I meant to be on the internet at the time. And <laughs> so I just want to encourage everybody to check it out. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great meeting both of you. And I'm going to go follow you on Twitter now. <laughs> Tanya Lieberg's work is used in Nisi Shaw's workshops and was used in Tanana Reeve Dew's UCLA Black Horror Course as examples of code switching. She has been long listed for the 2015 Carter V. Cooper Vanderbilt Exile Short Fiction Competition. You can find her blogging at www.spiderlily.com or on Twitter at some silly wowser spelled S-O-M-E-S-I-L-L-Y-W-O-W-Z-E-R. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Hey. Welcome. <laughs> I've, so uh, I, I got a big question for you. What is code switching? Okay. Um, everybody does it, okay? It's not just people of color or people outside the U.S. or Canada. You speak standard English when you're at work. You write or eat standard English good at work and you use vernacular when you're not. You use, for example, you use standard English and then you use, you know, jargon in your industry, right? You speak standard English and then you speak patois um, in different places or sometimes you mix them in one story like I did with 10 Steps Over Fantasy Magazine that got published in January this year. It's, you know, or you do, you speak Spanish and then you speak standard English you know, in the same conversation and you switch back and forth or in different right. conversations, you know, you, you, you speak one way in one situation, you speak another way in a different situation. That is code switching. Okay. So when, uh, when you list, I think I saw on your website, I think it, mm -hmm. you said you were a codexian. Is mm -hmm. that... It is a place for people like me who have a couple to a few or one even, recognized um, professional published story and they're working on getting um have more professional sales and to become more professionally published and to become considered more professional in general as a writer 
to enter, you have to have, I think, at least one professional sale. But mine was with book smugglers. And book smugglers does do professional sales. But um, I think they were planning on stopping doing that because they never really applied to SFWA for approval because at that time, they would have approved it really quickly. And then I had um, uh, Broken Eye Books. And that's another one that, that needed time. So it took me about three sales, like um, Diabolical Plots, because uh, David Stefan is very active in, co- in the Codex in, in community and forums online. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, that one we can accept. You know, that's how I got in. So it took me like third times a charm kind of thing. But for other people, there's just one sale. They help you with agents that um, are good and the ones that are scary, the ones that are problematic, the ones that are abusive, the ones that sexually harass, the one you from those agencies that are good or bad, um, magazines that you can publish to, all sorts of stuff to help you. So that's basically what a codex, codex is. Awesome. It's the Codex Writers Workshop. If you, look over, if you do search for that, you'll find it. Wonderful. It sounds like some great resources on there. So, so do you want to tell us what your... Uh, well, actually, first, before we get into the reading, we'll just uh, introduce our listeners to your bird named Rio, just in case he helps you with your reading. Listeners, if you hear a, a chirp chirp at some point, that's just Rio. He's a yellow-sided green sheep conure, and he, um, he's very smart, and it's like having a child that never grows up. <laughs> and if he you go, uh-uh, cute. he goes, eh-eh, you know. So if you hear him go, eh-eh, that's just him saying, huh, what? What did you say? <laughs> yeah he's eating some apple right now so he probably won't see anything till he's done <laughs> oh, there you go just like a person then <laughs> i'm eating leave me alone all right so if you want to just uh tell us what it is you're reading from and uh, mm-hmm. go right into it okay it's called through dreams she moves and um i wish it would get some more love yes we are it was this is the story that i wrote in 2015 and it on my first try, got long listed in the Carter B. Cooper $10,000 um, short fiction competition by Excel Publications. Carter B. Cooper, because that is um, Gloria Vanderbilt's um, son who uh, committed suicide. It's Anderson Cooper's brother. So that's, that's what I'm going to be reading from. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> Through dreams, she moves. The wild yellow dance of flames, the scent of smoke. Your screams. You're in my arms, your fearful voice mumbling unintelligible words. You grip me so tightly, your lacquered nails bite into my arm, and we sit as the flames surround us and climb into the night sky. You whimper, a sound almost consumed by their crackle and hiss. You get frantic at them, licking at your sleeve, scream as the hungry flames coax a blister from your pale skin. You wonder at my own untouched pale skin and black sleeves, at my implacable calm, because this is just a dream, I remind you once more. It is not real. Your fear of imminent death, your panic as your clothes begin to be consumed, fades along with your fearful moans. You regain composure. Your back straightens. A stable, confident clarity shines in your dark eyes, something I rarely see in them these days. The fire disappears. We open our eyes in your bedroom, on your bed. You rise and extricate yourself from our embrace. 
You look into my eyes, the sober clarity I saw while lost in your dream will be placed in the real world by a fragile skittishness that makes your eyes dart hither and yon. Thank you, you say softly to me. You look into my eyes, mother to daughter, a broken toy past your playability, uncertainty and gratitude trading places within your eyes, along with your features. I kiss your forehead, lay you back down onto the bed and pull up the covers telling you goodnight before heading to my own room. The smell of dishwashing soap, of lavender, of childhood mornings gone by. The unspoken words that color the silence between us, the ties that bind. Your back is to me as I enter the kitchen. You're busy washing dishes. You flick your hair out of the way with a movement of your head to see me. Dark, straight hair like mine, just past our shoulder blades. That uncertainty I saw in your eyes last night is still there this morning. Shame, perhaps. The framed blow up of an old photo of one of my great grandfathers, a black man stares at us from the wall over the kitchen table. Your half finished glass of whiskey sitting there makes me purse my lips, obligations. Morning, mother, I say to you. Morning, you reply. You eye me briefly as I walk around the pale kitchen and warm some pancakes I'd made the day before. You finish up drying your hands on a teacloth, wiping your palms on your oversized shirt. You come and sit with me at the table. I watch you as you eat your bacon and eggs. You think an adult mother shouldn't lean on an adult daughter, but can't an adult mother and daughter be friends? You wish I didn't know your troubles. You wish you didn't need a daughter in the deep of the night when your nightmares sometimes take shape. You don't want to need me, my aid. You didn't want any of this, but most of this was put on you, in you, when you were very young. Daddies who touched you where they shouldn't, then progress to more intimate violations. Brothers and uncles who partook of you on the side, a mother who chose to be blind and blame shifted you. And it all came to a head one day when your unique gift manifested in your puberty, like it does for all of us. And twisted family secrets literally became the 800 pound grotesquely in the room out in the open for everyone, neighbors, strangers, to witness your monster, a one-time manifestation of a hideous, dangerous imaginary friend. It's not unheard of to have one-time manifestations of imaginary friends for some as their gift, but yours, yours had to be put down. A little bit of your imaginary friend stayed with you and a little bit of you died with it and a little bit of the ability remained like an outy belly button to remind one of a past connection enough to make your dreams sometimes a problematic thing. It shook the family to its core. No one, nothing was the same again, was it mother? I want to ask, not for you, for sure. It taught you a lesson you passed along to me, saying to me with urgency more than once from the time I was young, your nails digging into the pale skin of my forearms, urging me to look into your eyes, or while I touched you and after saving you from your nightmares about men, Always make sure, we warned, that they love you more than you love them. Yes, mother, I would reply, my own urgency increasing with understanding and age, and you would search my eyes and finally let go, satisfied. My eyes go now to the picture of my great-grandfather for a moment. I wonder about him, my past. I look back to you. I wonder about you, my present. Do you still think I am your blessing, I ask you. You pause for a moment, the look in your dark eyes dark like mine, or far away. Pain crosses your expression for a moment, some memory, 
Then he looked me directly in the eyes. Yes. You give a smile that seems fragile, lest some emotion from others or some happenstance have no right to exist on it. Yes, it was a blessing that your daughter can walk through dreams unscathed and help you heal from yours. You see me smile at you. Your smile gains confidence, draws strength. I rise from the table, give you a quick hug, and head out for work. Wow. Yeah, that was powerful and riveting. I was, wow, just totally drawn into the story. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Haunting and powerful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a couple of moments that I was just, (laughs) if I was a (laughs) had a little tear there but uh, yeah, yeah when I looked to the to the screen I was like wow she's really into it <laughs> sorry if I was just I looked to you like you were just ready to just finish listening to the rest of it and I'm like oh my god I can see yeah, you didn't have to stop <laughs> really? oh really <laughs> I'm like, okay I thought I only had about five minutes okay. yeah. well I could listen all night um so so where do you get your your inspiration for your writing. Okay, various places. I think this one started over a title. No, 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 no. I had problems with the title for this one. Oh, I know who it is. It's Vajra Chandrasekhara, a second person story called um, On Being Undone by a Light Breeze, which was published by Lackingtons, which is um, Canadian. It's one of the same editors of Postscripts to Darkness made her promo magazine called Lackingtons. And every um, and every every time they have an open a caucus admissions, it's a theme. I am afraid of writing things for themes because the first short story I ever got published was something I wrote for Nalo Hopkinson's um, So Long Been Dreaming back in 2003, and it got published in 2017. So that's 14 years for a theme story to get published. And the second one I tried to write for Ursula Puflik's, um, um she had a thing with Exile. And it was a personalized rejection and she wanted it to find a home. That one took only a year, but the other one took 14. I would love to get something published by Lackington's, but I am afraid of theme stuff because it just sits there. Now I've got the words from your reading in my head. I think the reading Echoing through your head. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a while since I looked at it. And while I was reading it, I'm like, wow, this is deep. Yeah. So powerful. I think that I mean, I am a child abuse survivor and I'm also a physical and psychological. I'm also sexual, but not for my family, my neighbor when I was living in Trinidad. I thought if I told my family or my mom or my dad that they'll blame me. So I never told them. Actually, no, uh, a family member also did something, but I don't want to get into details as to you. That one messed me over for about a year when I came to Canada because it, it just, you know, I reached the point where I could not hide the fact that I had a mental illness. Even though I was extremely hyper in school because of the PTSD that was happening. Like I'd literally be hyper in school and okay and calm at home. And one friend called a Hock Leong Tan, he's Vietnamese. He said, why don't you act like this in school? And I was like, I don't know, right? And I know it's because of PTSD because a sibling that had abused me was going to the school. And I couldn't make any friends because of the stuff she was saying about me. Right. It's the same thing they were saying to family. And I, I you know I had a godmother who picked up the phone when I was talking to her husband and said she doesn't want to see me ever again. She doesn't want to hear from me ever again. So I still have PTSD nightmares about the emotional abuse I got from her and the grandmother. I don't call her my grandmother. 
I, those, I'm passionate about those issues. So they show up very often in my work. I have had friends who have been friends for, for 15 years, and now I realize that they may have been autistic as well, um, but they're very personable. They have better people skills than I do, right? But when I was at a, um, a group home when I was 20, because I was trying to see if I can get some stability and some better grades at school, it didn't work. She was there, and at first she said it was her son, and then she said it was her brother. And then she told me that her father got her pregnant and it was her brother, I mean, her son. Um, the son has been has since died from a car accident in the States and it has just messed her up. She she had three sons and she lost two. But you know, she has been sexually abused each time she got a child. So, you know, I be I was friends with her for 15 years. So, you know, being abused myself, I understand how it is. I have a short story called um, Super Freak. And I've heard I've heard people say it gets intense and icky at one point because you know it's about somebody whose parents die, and then you know the the abusive family dynamics aren't she isn't shielded from it anymore. It hits her, you know, and she has to run away. And then the people she ran to um, could enter their minds and sort of um, abuse them that way. And she had to, you know, she was lucky that she's a one in a million person who doesn't who wasn't born having a unique gift that manifested at puberty. So it wasn't, she wasn't able to do much, but she had to run from there and she went into a hostel and stuff like that. And that's basically, um, I kind of ran it on the backstory of my life for it, but it's obviously not that the same things haven't happened to me or in the same way for some, for some of it as that story. But, um, you know, it got ickier on the part with the uncle sort of, but yeah, it shows up again in um, Bootleg Jesus, a whole bunch of stories, but a, a lot of them have um, people with mental health issues. Like for example, uh, the one, The Ace of Knives. That one, I was at the Gerstein Center in downtown Toronto, which is a place you go to um, when you need, you, you need somewhere to go to, but it's not bad enough that you have to be hospitalized for two weeks, you know where they would they where they could probably say you can't go outside for for two weeks you have to stay in inside the um the the, the ward and after two weeks they feel you're safe enough um to you're not a danger to yourself to go out right um so it's not that bad um but you need some place to nip it in the bud um and that's why i started the story it was because this that one started because of the title there we go that one started because of the title <laughs> Um, I was playing um, Team Fortress 2 at the time, and there was a, uh, a pyro called the Ace of Knaves. And I misread it as the Ace of Knives, and I was like, ooh, that gives me ideas. And that's how it starts. Um, there was a, a, an author, an African author that's based in the, in, in the UK, and they had um, showed a picture on Facebook of a shoe with teeth. And I started writing, a, I wrote a little piece of flash and then Kelly, I showed it to Kelly Robs, and I was like, what do you think of this? And she said, it's room to breathe. This means it, it's, it, it needs more words. It's not properly expressed. And I was like, really? Okay. And that one got published by um, uh, Expanded Horizons back in 2016. That one's called Shoe Man. A lot of people like it. Um, Stephen Blackmore, he'd do a daily horror scope, which is really dark humor, but it was, it was just hilarious. Every, every sign gets something, gave me ideas and I combined it into a story called An Accounting of Sorts. That got published as well in 2018. Wow. Um, yeah, 
so that's basically the drunken tree. I saw a title on a book and um, it just gave me ideas. And then when I was writing it, I changed something. I said, let's switch between um, fantasy and dark. Every scene alternates between that. And um, Richard Thomas, who is very well known in the horror community, he, uh, let me see, uh, he has a course on literary actor that he does short story mechanics. And then he has a bunch of courses that he does in literary actor, then does articles called Storyville. And he's also been nominated for the Bram Stoker. He's been in Best Horror. So I showed him a snippet of it. But there's a book that just came out and I was like, hmm, right? And I sort of um, got inspired by that scene in the book. And when uh, Michael Bailey came out and said he's looking for people of color and, and Black people in particular to give space in uh, Shirel Mad 5. And he said he asked people if they can submit something, if, if anybody recommends them in the, in the replies in his Facebook and uh, Linda Addison, who got a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Horror Rights Association for her poetry and what she does for the community, she suggested me as somebody who can have something in the anthology. And Richard Thomas says, yes, I knew I forgot somebody because he had suggested a bunch of people earlier on in the replies. Mm -hmm. And he said, she has a short story right now that made my skin crawl. <laughs> I made Richard Thomas's fucking skin crawl with that story. <laughs> so Michael Bailey said, there are several people who've recommended you and I'm interested in story. And I said, oh yes, I'd like to show it to you. And I show it to him and he's like, this is perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> it wasn't professional, but I mean, Sean that is really sort of good stuff. Then other things have blew my mind since then. Like for example, Apex Magazine just came out on the 16th because they, um, they publish every two months. So over the course of two months, they release something to be to be read publicly on online for free rather than having to buy the um the store so but suppose the idea is if you like the story you might want to support them by buying the actual issue so on the 16th they released it and they said we have just published a certified genre classic and i'm like you just called my first ever published story of a certified genre classic and then they had another tweet that's what i said personally in my head okay mm -hmm, yeah okay <laughs> Um, and then um, they followed up with a, with a reply tweet saying, certified awesome by writers, reviewers, and um, various professors over the years. So I'm like, that's a good reason. <laughs> Is there anything you want to tell our listeners or say? So I'm on mental health disability, but obviously not an ideal situation because I still have to get extra cash to sort of follow through and things. So I have a Patreon. Um, which is, you know, patreon.com slash Tanya Lieberg. And thing, I go into detail about my mental health life uh, and um, what it's like to be a writer on mental health, with, with mental health issues of trying to become published and stuff like that. And I go into deep, more, much more detail than I do in, in publicly about things like, um, um, I just found out something about uh, an, ex, uh, an ex who um, committed suicide 10 years ago, his sister revealed some stuff to me because it, I, it just started up because I wanted a picture of it. I wanted to see a picture of him when he was small because I'd never seen that. Um, I dated him for a year, before, you know, about um, a couple of years before he committed suicide. Um, so she, you know, the conversation just continued and then I found out certain things. And I wanted to, I told the people at Patreon because that sort of ties in to um, me having to live with things and what it's like especially when you have people, you know, people who've committed suicide. That's the kind of stuff I get into. I've, no, I've tried to commit suicide myself. 
And it may have been because I was taking Paxil and I just got switched to Paxil. I, um, I have been really close for several times in my years where I've been um, suicidally ideating, but I've never actually done it. So I, um, there's a bit of fear that what will happen if I reach that point where I don't care anymore. And I share those kind of things with people on my Patreon because I'm not really ready. Um, it might be triggering for people who are trying to recover if I talk about those things in public. I mean, you can imagine what it's like being an First Nations person and knowing that they deliberately sterilized your people in, people in your community because they don't want you to have kids. And you know there is an unofficial genocidal um, agenda happening to your people. Imagine living with that every day. Anyway. Um, no, they, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, 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 people find so difficult to talk about. And I'm so yeah. glad you're on the show and you're so open and honest and, and really breaking yeah. that stigma. And, and I've, been, I've been told enough times that um, me talking about my mental health openly helped her deal with hers. I've heard that enough times that I go, okay, um, I'm probably helping at least one person every time I talk about this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And really, we should be aiming for a society where we don't have to hide that stuff all the time. Exactly. Right? exactly. So. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so, Tanya, we'll have to have you on again for more talk. You have so much to share with yeah. us. <laughs> oh. my, my partner has a Zoom he has to hop onto, and our internet isn't strong enough for two at a time. But I want to say, so far, I've only read Ace of Knives, and mm. it was amazing, and I love it. And yeah. I can't wait to read more of your work. And I Thank encourage all of our... Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I encourage yeah. all of our listeners to look you up. Mm -hmm. Take a read. Well, thank you so much for being here. And yeah, I didn't get a chance to read um, Ace of Knives yet, but I will be after this. Apex Magazine. Stay yeah. with us was amazing. As, as you said, I was just riveted to the screen. So I'm sure I'll love Ace of Knives too. So thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. It's, it's been my pleasure. Wow, Brandy, those readings were so amazing. Absolutely. I mean, you, you have a little bit of all kinds of different subject matters in there. I mean, talking to Tanya about uh, her mental health and the different places she gets inspiration from. I, I mean, it's such important conversations to have, right? And that was Absolutely. such a powerful reading from her. I was just glued to listening to it the whole time. Um, so hopefully, you know, I'd love to have all of our guests on uh, again at some point, right? Because there's so much more that they can talk to us about. Megan and AP's readings were both wonderful examples of suspense and a little bit of horror. Well, I like how Megan put it, horror adjacent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's um, some psychological stuff, even with AP's reading. Um, like we discussed with her, she's got a sense of humor. You can really see that come through in the story and it, it just gives it, you know, some more depth. You don't necessarily need a lot of blood and gore 
to have something be in the horror genre is what I've always thought. So I, I do like that we had two readings on here today that are more horror adjacent than that real, you know, blood and gore type stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just enough to give you a little bit of chills every so often, right? And you know what? AP's story, if you think about it, you get in the headspace of someone who is free falling from a plane and landing in a den of lions. I mean, that would be a pretty horrific moment. <laughs> you know, psychologically, that would be pretty horrifying. So Absolutely. even if he is an asshole, <laughs> <laughs> even if he is a big jerk, yeah, it's still horrifying. So <laughs> And Megan, uh, her, her word usage, we talked about it with her with the, the little white gate and just the way that she described the beginning of her story. It did kind of give you those chills like you could feel like you would if you were if you had that in your area, you know, that sort of pathway with the gate and knowing that there's these delightfully horrible things beyond it. Yeah, so, sure. yeah, you, uh... I thought. Do you do any horror writing of your own, uh, Brandy? I do. I do. Um, nothing that I've shared because, I don't know, I'm just kind of getting into it. I haven't really found my comfort zone with horror writing yet, but it is yeah. pretty much my favorite genre to take in. So I've been trying to put that into my stable of things I write. So yeah, where, I tried out find, to... Uh, where, where do you find your inspiration when you're thinking of it? Oh, gosh. Well, for horror specifically, I do watch way too many horror movies and TV shows. American Horror Story is a TV show that I've watched several times all seasons. I probably shouldn't say that because it makes me sound a little crazy. But I think, you know, inspiration comes from taking in these things that you naturally gravitate to and then letting your brain just run with it. Right. So I would say usually that and also, honestly, sometimes nightmares, you know, yeah. I, I have a very wild dream life. I dream almost every night and sometimes the dreams are just like stories in my head. And sometimes those have led to some, some horror type short stories. So, right. Actually last night we attended a haunted walk ghost tour, which was, this one was based on Laurier house up in Ottawa. And it was fascinating. Um, it was like set up as a campfire and you signed into the little virtual webinar and they had a fireplace going in the background. And then when the guest speaker came on, they had candles flickering in the back and it was amazing, amazing. Um, her voice and the way she emoted all of her words, it was perfect for setting the scene. So... Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. I love watching horror, but. Uh, yeah, our listeners, you it. can't see this right now, but uh, Chris is in a room with uh, Dracula and he's not in a room with Dracula. He's in a room with posters <laughs> on the wall. And one of them is a poster of Dracula and the other one is interview with the vampires. So <laughs> it's true. Uh, all of my my desk ornaments, I suppose you could say, that, are all dragons and ravens and skulls. And it's all very horror centric, actually. Gothic. Gothic, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I've never actually labeled it before. I just collect things that uh, I find twinge my imagination. Mm hmm. 
I think as most writers tend to do, you know, we surround ourselves with things that inspire us. Most people do, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Brandy, is there any news coming out from our members? Yes, we are pleased to announce that Catherine Graham is launching her seventh poetry collection, Ether, an out-of-body lyric, this spring. Graham has created a luminous homage to family, to cancer, and to the strange windings of truth. Memories mesh with visitations and multiple stories unfold of pain and loss, of hidden tragedy, forgiveness, and growth. With an otherworldly delicacy, Graham stitches it all together to create a book-length lyric essay of lingering and profound beauty, a pay-on to the complexity of love and survival. You can pre-order this at bookstore.wolsackandwin.ca slash products. What awesome news for Catherine. We've had the pleasure of having Catherine read her poetry at several past Toronto branch events and hope to have her on a future podcast episode. So before we wrap up, we want to give a quick reminder to our published CAA members that you can now subscribe to our member book catalog through the Canadian Authors Association national website. Members have exclusive access to this optional user fee-based service and anyone can access the catalog to buy your book, providing an extra opportunity to promote and sell your books. Our listings continue to grow, so check in regularly at canadianauthors.org slash national slash member book catalog. And Brandy, I think, does a portion of the proceeds of sales from this site, they also go back into programming for Canadian authors, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do get... um... I can't tell you the percentage off my off the top of my head, but there is a small percentage that goes back to CAA to use towards programming, um, towards membership benefits, towards the association at large. So it not only helps us as an association, but all of our members help sell your books. I mean, that's what we're all about, right? <laughs> And I check the member book catalog pretty much every week, and I'm constantly blown away by the amazing books our members have published. And in fact, you can even purchase a copy of our very own Chris Gorman's debut fantasy novel, Dawn of Magic, Rise of the Guardians. Thanks, Brandy. That's Shout why you out made the to title Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that is why, yep. I love to give you shout outs. I, I know I'm biased towards you a little bit, but uh, you're my podcast partner, so I'm allowed to be. Thanks, Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So as we wind down this month's show, we want to remind our listeners that we will have a special announcement when we reach a thousand downloads. And we're happy to say that we're almost at 800 already. So help us get to the 1000 download mark by spreading the word liking us on your favorite social media, sharing us with your friends, and subscribing to the podcast. And that, beloved listeners, brings us to the end of our 10th episode of Words with Writers podcast. We're planning next month's theme already to be romance writing. So if you are a CAA member with a romance excerpt to share, please email me, Brandy Tanner, at membership 
at canadianauthors.org. I can't wait. (laughs) That episode will be released on Saturday, March 20th. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.